Patrice is the one who pitched the idea to me. She's read a tremendous amount of fiction of all kinds and thrillers and crime novels. And she knew, because we'd been married since 1987, that I had done mob work. I'd been the boss of all federal prosecutors in Manhattan. And both of us thought a lot about our eldest daughter, who was the chief of the violent and organized crime unit in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan. And based on all that, Patrice said to me over coffee one morning, because we've been talking about maybe me trying to write fiction, what about a story based on the mob? And pitched a rough outline of this, and I loved it. Well, um, kudos to her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been doing this 32 years, and I don't think my husband's ever pitched a book to me. <laughs> He's pitched one back at me. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. We have the honor on this episode to welcome a guest you may not think of initially as a fiction writer, but trust us, by the end of our conversation, you will believe. Since graduating from the College of William and Mary in 1982 and the University of Chicago Law School in 1985, James Comey, yes, James Comey, has been a prosecutor, defense lawyer, general counsel, teacher, writer, and leader. He most recently served in the U.S. government as the director of the FBI. His best-selling book, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership, was published in 2018 and was made into a 2020 television limited series. His second book, Saving Justice, Truth, Transparency, and Trust, was also a New York Times bestseller, and that was published in 2021. Central Park West is his first crime novel. I am Ron Block. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. Jim Comey's riveting book has been getting some heavy hitting endorsements <laughs> from the likes of Michael Connolly, Alifair Burke, and Nicole Wallace. In fact, Harlan Coben has written, James Comey's intimate knowledge of law enforcement makes Central Park West a, a winning legal thriller. But the book is so much more than an insider's account. Memorable characters, a gripping plot, and breathless pacing combine for a truly outstanding debut. One that announces a bold new talent in the mystery genre. Welcome yes. to the podcast, James. It's great to be with you. How does it feel to have such support from, you know, <laughs> those are some heavy hitting guys. That's some pretty big stuff. And ladies, don't let me forget about Alifair and Nicole Wallace. Yeah, that's for sure. It just increases my imposter complex. <laughs> Welcome it, to the club, buddy. It's very Yes, definitely. <laughs> it's just very, very intimidating. I'm glad that they took the time to read it and say those things. But again, I feel like a, an imposter. Well, obviously, once people have read the book, they'll know that that's not true. But I think we all share a little bit of that imposter syndrome. So let's start with you telling us a little bit about Central Park West. What's the book about? Well, I'm hoping that the readers will figure that out for themselves. But I hope part of what they find it's about is what is it like inside a high stakes, complicated federal investigation focused on the mob and evil politicians. And maybe more than that, what are the people like inside of that? And how do they interact? 
and how are they flawed and how are they great? I've tried to paint a picture based on people I've known. So I hope that's what folks find it's about. Oh, nice. Where did the original plot idea for this book come from? Were you carrying this around in your hip pocket thinking this is a story I can use? No, it was inside my amazing wife's head. Oh, Patrice is the one who pitched the idea to me. She's read a tremendous amount of fiction of all kinds and thrillers and crime novels. And she knew, because we'd been married since 1987, that I had done mob work. I'd been the boss of all federal prosecutors in Manhattan. And both of us thought a lot about our eldest daughter, who was the chief of the violent and organized crime unit in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan. Um, And based on all that, Patrice said to me over coffee one morning, because we've been talking about maybe me trying to write fiction, what about a story based on the mob? And pitched a rough outline of this, and I loved it. Well, kudos um, to her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been doing this 32 years, and I don't think my husband's ever pitched a book to me. <laughs> He's pitched one back at me. <laughs> By the way, James, we started reading yours um, last night, and um, you know, I finally had to just turn the lights off because he was so into it. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, I married a woman with many, many talents. Among them is story vision. As she, If she were here, she would say she's not a writer, she doesn't write, but she thinks about stories and pitches them to me, and then we iterate on it until I've got something that we both think makes sense. And it, in a way, this one was easy. We had originally conceived of it as with a male protagonist, but while I was writing this, Patrice was going to court to watch our oldest daughter prosecute Glenn Maxwell, who was Jeffrey Epstein's uh, partner in crime. Um. She, she had indicted Jeffrey Epstein and he killed himself before she could try him. But she was on her feet as the lead prosecutor in United States versus Maxwell in courtroom 318, which is a strange twist. It's the same courtroom in which I prosecuted John Gambino when she was a little girl. And so Patrice was allowed to go. Maureen banned me because she said, even with a COVID mask, the giraffe that I am, I would stand out. It would be a thing, dad. And so I didn't go, but Patrice went, and that's what inspired us to say, let's make the protagonist inspired by Maureen. Let's make this incredible woman, Nora Carlton. And that, to my mind, was a key turn in making this a a really good story. I might need you to give Patrice my phone number. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to lose her. (laughs) No way. She's exclusive. Oh, oh, darn it. (laughs) Start a consulting firm. Yeah. <laughs> so um, Nora and Benny are are your protagonists in, in the book here. And you told us a little bit about what influenced them. But like, how did they emerge within you? And how did they grow into the characters that they became? Benny was the easiest because I pictured one of my oldest and dearest friends, uh, the greatest investigator I've ever met who died in 2006, but with whom I investigated mob cases, a fellow named Kenny McCabe, who really is Benny in a lot of ways. Not, not, it's not a full match, but, but I could picture Kenny's voice when I wrote Benny, and that made it so much easier. Nora Carlton is more loosely based on our daughter Maureen, but, but I could think about what I thought I was like as a prosecutor, although I know I'm an unrelated, unreliable narrator about myself, but picture conversations with my daughter and watching a lot of the people that I worked for. And so I tried to fix on a voice, lock it in, and then keep it throughout the book. That's how I, I kept Nora and Benny straight in my own head. 
yeah, Benny's a great character, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, they both are. And a lot of it is just real. I mean, I, I hope for folks, this is some of the realest fiction they'll ever read because I took some of the dialogue from the courtroom. I literally took from cases I tried. I mean, I took the transcript out and found some particularly amazing exchanges and said, why don't I just use that? And I, for example, one of the witnesses is a world-class art thief. Well, he was my witness and I spent a lot of time with him. And uh, during the course of of finalizing the book, one of my editors suggested that something I had written about his, one of his capers was unrealistic and maybe we should consider changing it. And I said, it actually happened. And so I'm going to stick to what happened instead of what might seem realistic. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes things that are on the nose, um, it's hard to believe, it's hard for other people to understand or to believe. Yeah, that's really, truly on the nose. And that reminds me about, you've got that female um, mobster, Gina. Where did Gina come from? And how likely is it that the mafia would ever accept a woman to do a man's work? Ah, Well, Gina came from conversations between me and Patrice over coffee as to what, I don't want to give anything away, but what one of the key characters might be like. Uh, we wanted it to be a woman because that was an important part of the plot. Again, not, not no spoilers here. Right, right. But, um, and it's also, it gave me an opportunity to explore and show readers some of the mobs, the hypocrisy in the mobs claim to be principled. And, but look, there are real examples of New York Times had an article, I think this weekend, about a famous mobster mafia killer who was a woman who was charged with killing a rival mobster in 1964, a very attractive uh, woman who was not allowed to be prominent in the mafia, but found a way to have a role. And that's what Gina is like. And so that's where it came from, inspired by real life and the product of conversations with uh, Patrice. I have to go back because I I just eyeballed that article and I haven't read it through yet, but I'm going to now. Yeah, I'll go back too. So um, you switched from writing, um, obviously, realistic nonfiction to fiction. Um, how did you approach that? You, you, you said Patrice gave you the idea, but how did you actually get your head wrapped around that? I was never going to do it. My The editor of my second nonfiction book, Saving Justice, which is a story-driven book that almost that far fewer people read than the first book because it had the misfortune to come out uh, several days after the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And so for good reason, it was swamped by that. But it was story-driven, where I told stories from cases I had done to try and illustrate the values that we ought to have at the heart of justice and the Justice Department, in particular after what had gone on during the Trump administration. I thought maybe I can illustrate the values that were lacking with some stories. And the editor said, he kept referring to things in the book as scenes. And I would say, it's not a scene that actually happened. <laughs> And he would say, have you thought about writing fiction? And I said, nah, not really. I'm kind of a nonfiction, always been a nonfiction reader. And he nudged and nudged. And finally, I started to give it more serious thought. And I found it addictive. I found it harder, much harder than writing nonfiction, but much more fun than writing nonfiction. And so once I got into it, it was hard to let go. And One of the reasons I'm nervous about all of this is I love this so much. I really want to do this uh, as my job. I would like to do this till I'm old and foolish. 
And that's going to be possible only if people like the book and want to read it. But that's how I got into it. And that's what I found once I got in. Well, um, I have to confess, Jim, I was ready to hate this book. (laughs) (laughs) And you made a believer out of me. Yes. Yeah, definitely. You made a believer out of me. Um, I binged it in a weekend. And um, I was thinking about some of the minutiae from the book rings awfully true. I'm thinking about the uh, syncophanic U.S. attorney. And my favorite thing he does is he steals (laughs) the secretary's oriental rug, which was a gift to her from a former uh, boss. Now, is there a story behind that story? There are stories behind a lot of what's in the book. They're, they call them Easter eggs. There yes. are Easter eggs hidden throughout the book. Uh, it's fiction. Right. But, and, but there are lots of places where very few people will notice things and maybe uh, wince a little. But I don't want to explain the backstory. I don't want to give away the Easter eggs, uh, again, because it's fiction. Okay, but I did spot an Easter egg there, right? You did. Okay. Okay. That's good. That's all we need to know. <laughs> we love a good Easter egg, don't we? Yes. Love them. Um, so I want to talk to you about um, forming the structure of the book. So it's it's obviously completely fiction, and the approach to it is very different than what you've done before. So how did you decide how to put the book together? Because one of the things that really works in mystery and thriller things is building the tension and keeping it going and keeping the reader at a high level. And you succeeded great in this, terrifically in this. So can you talk about your approach to that and how you maintained the suspense? Yeah. Uh, With a lot of advice and brutal feedback from family and friends, but we started by imagining the story entirely and then tried to figure out, I, as the writer, tried to figure out, so how, what will I show and when, and how do I keep people interested? Because there's more than one trial in this book. Mm -hmm. And I worried about creating a two hump camel with a trough in between the two humps and would I lose people? And so just constantly staring at it and having people read it and say, does this suck or does this work? And what what part did you get stuck on? And when I first wrote it, my family are my key readers. The reaction from my five kids was, it's really interesting, Dad, but it's a little slow between the trials. And and I feel like as a reader, even though I love you dearly, you got to move more quickly through the trials. And so I'd go back and turn it and then let another kid read it and get brutal feedback. I, one of my worries is, like I've had these uh, high positions in government, and I've learned from those jobs that the higher you get in roles, the harder it is to hear the truth, especially about yourself. And what's great about my family and friends is there's, there's no hesitation there. And some of my friends delight, I think, in telling me when I'm stinking. And so I just constantly got advice on, is this moving the way it needs to move? And settled in a place where I hope it moves quickly enough while also being rich, that both humps are significant, but there isn't a big trough between them. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Makes total sense. Yeah. Good to have them on your side too. <laughs> oh, it is. It's, it's always. And the way Patrice and I work is that I, I would go away and write, once we agreed upon a, a plot summary, I would write it up and she would read it on a Google Doc and give me comments. And then we do the same thing through drafting the book. I would go away and write. And then at night, she would read on a Google Doc what I had written during the day. 
and didn't edit it, but commented and said, this, this is great, or this doesn't seem so good, or maybe you ought to consider doing this. And then I'd iterate and turn it and turn it and turn it. And through that process, we got to a place where we had something we wanted to share with the kids and then with my friends. And when I say my friends, I pick people who know this business, former prosecutors, former FBI people, law enforcement people who could tell me, am I being real enough? And am I being interesting enough? Did you have to clear anything? Jim, through the uh, because there's some there's some inside baseball stuff about um, courtroom security that kind of stuff. Did um, obviously you know it's fiction, so you get to make up stuff. But was any of, did you have to get clearance for any of it? I didn't have to. I thought, and among the feedback pieces I got was from people in the business, and I was trying to be thoughtful about not giving away things that might create a security problem. I moved the location of, of a prison. So I didn't give something away there and a couple other minor changes to protect sort of sources and methods. But other than that, it was because it's fiction. And because I was careful about not giving away too much, uh, I think we're in a good place. So basically, let me ask you this. Did, did Patrice give you a, um, did she just give you a symposium in writing fiction? No, no. Uh, she, uh, writing is not her thing, but reading right. is her thing. And she would say to me after she read a chunk of it, she'd say, look, I, I think of myself as every reader, and I think they will like this. Or she would say, I think they will not like that. And she would, having read so many books in this genre, she would say, it always bugged me when... And so don't do that. Or she'd say, I really like this technique. So I think you ought to continue to do that. And so she gave me a symposium on on what reads well so that I could go and try and write it well. Fair enough. Yeah, definitely. So do you think that there will be people who come at you when the book comes out and say, hey, that was based on me and that was you took that from me kind of thing? Because people always like to see themselves um, portrayed in a book. That's a good question. I don't know, because some of the Easter eggs, I don't think anybody wants to claim. And so I think there'll be a lot of, that's not me. I don't know what he's talking about. I didn't, I didn't do that or say that or, <laughs> or be that. And then there are others. I've told the people who I drew inspiration, obviously the, the major characters, uh, told my daughter we were, I was using her as inspiration. Kenny McCabe is deceased, so I couldn't do that. And but I think his family will be happy with how I've ca- tried to capture his spirit. And then others, I, I sent a copy to a couple of people who were serious inspiration and saying, I hope I hope I captured your essence well. But uh, that's all I've done on that front. Gotcha. A lot of people who switch from one career to writing fiction, um, their first time out of the gate, it's a lot of themselves on the page. Um, is, is there any character in here that you most identify with? Probably Nora. Because a fair bit of the inspiration for Nora is is me picturing what I went through. And I was a young prosecutor living in Hoboken, New Jersey, living in Maplewood, New Jersey, commuting in the same way. It was before 9-11, so the transit system was different downtown. But But a lot of it was me picturing me walking. And I remember how the wind was and and... I've confirmed all that, obviously, with people who walk into it today. And so, but I didn't want to write about me. 
that I know it sounds like an odd, I was about to say I'm sick of me, but <laughs> I, I, what I mean is I, I don't want to write about me. My, right. my first two books were about personal experiences I had had that I thought would be useful to folks. I want to write about these places, these situations, these institutions, and take people inside of them. And in a way, writing about me gets in the would get in the way of that. And so um, I pictured a lot of these places, but I tried to make the, the protagonist not me. You know, that uh, leads into a question that both Ron and I are wondering about. Mm-hmm. Um, we've read that um, Central Park West is, is set to be a series. Can you talk to us about that and let us know what we have to look forward to? Yeah. And you know this infinitely better than I do, but the the lag time between writing and publication is such that you won't be surprised, but I've finished a very good draft of the next book already. And it's out, it's had a family read, it's out with friends. And last night I got actually a friend's feedback on it. And so it will be, um, the action will move to be centered mostly on Westport, Connecticut, but also the city and involves Nora working at an enormous hedge fund. I was going to say, it's not a coincidence. I was the general counsel for three years of the world's largest hedge fund during one of my stints outside of government. And so I'm able to use that experience. I hope to take readers inside that world and keep the characters the same by and large. Mm -hmm. And so that's the next installment. And then I imagine the third installment will also be in New York. And I'd like to have it centered on espionage and terrorism. Um, some of the things that I've, I've done a lot of work in and bring readers inside of those situations as the FBI and the federal government uh, wrestle with it. And so I, I've pictured, again, with my spouse's help, three books in New York. I don't know whether we move after, as I said, my dream is to keep doing this un, until I can't do it anymore. But but we have a sketch of three books in Washington, D.C., three books in Richmond, Virginia. Those are all places that I worked and could take people inside institutions like the White House, the CIA, the FBI, the Justice Department. But that's down the road. For this one, at least for the near term, another, at least another book or two centered in New York. So you can't tell us whether or not Nora's going to go to work as the director of the FBI. See, I, I'm glad you're showing some uh, shocking discipline. I'm not going to answer that because I started to talk about future books and my publisher offline said, don't do that because then you give away what happens to your character. Oh, man. So we're not going to so know. I'm not going to do it. We're not going to know if she goes to work for a corrupt president. <laughs> she might. I don't want to say. I'm not allowed to say. Oh, well, that's, I mean, that's the ultimate uh, tease there. Yeah. Stay tuned, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I can imagine you have a giant treasure chest full of ideas for for future books. So I I think we're along for the ride. Uh, that's great. I hope so. So uh, one of your earlier books, um, if we could talk about it, was uh, made into a television program, uh, The Comey Effect. Can you talk about how that came about and how crazy it was to have Jeff Daniels portray you? Yeah, the whole thing is surreal. It came about because a really talented Hollywood writer and director named Billy Ray, who did Captain Phillips and a bunch of other movies, and he read the book and wanted to tell a story through the book. And so the book is part of the Comey Rule show, but there's a lot of it that he wrote based on interviews. 
And so it was surreal to watch. I learned things that I had missed, honestly, by watching what he gathered from interviewing and writing about the nightmare that was the 2016 election, the nightmare that was the Clinton email investigation, interactions with Trump, all of that. And what he captured extremely well is the pain of my family that I think I underweighted, that it's very hard to watch someone you care about and who you have insight into lacerated publicly. Not so painful for me because I can block it out. And I know the basis on which I'm making decisions. And even if I'm making decisions people disagree with, if they knew, they would see that I'm trying to do the right thing. But my family would see all the hate that poured in and hear about it at school or at work. And so he captures that in a great way. Jennifer Ely, the talented British-American actor who plays my wife, is my wife. If you want to meet my wife, you just have to watch the Comey rule. And then Jeff Daniels is not quite me. Again, it's not my show, so I only got one chance to go on the set. I went to Toronto and watched on a day, them filmed the scene where Jeff Daniels and Brendan Gleeson as Trump are having the one-on-one dinner in the green room in the White House. Yeah. And the only thing I said to Daniels, who seems like a wonderful guy, is, could you act a little taller? <laughs> And he said, look, man, I'm doing the best I can. I've got two-inch lifts in my shoes. I'm like 6'3 to start with. I'm doing the best I can. So that was surreal. I actually told them this, which I hope they took as a compliment. I got mildly nauseous watching the scene because they were so good that it took me back to some really um, difficult times. And I said, look, the best thing I can tell you guys is just ruined my day. It was surreal, strange. My kids got a lot of joy out of teasing about it. Uh, It shows the pain in my family, and it tells people what my spouse is really like. Daniels, I think, is fine. I think he missed. It's hard to be funny when you're the FBI director because there's not much funny going on. But I also tease saying you kind of miss. I'm kind of hilarious sometimes. And he's like, yeah, that's not part of this. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, James, Jim, FBI director, (laughs) awesome thriller writer, legal thriller writer. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us today and giving us a sneak peek at your first work of crime fiction, Central Park West. I think Ron and I both agree that it's going to get a lot of buzz and congratulations and welcome to the club. Now, tell us, if you would, where people can find out more about Central Park West. We know it's out. When is it out? It's out May 30th. Right. And would you tell us a little bit about your tour stops to promote the book? Sure. I'm going, let's see, I think I got it in order. New York, Toronto, Cleveland, which is an amazing city, as I may know. (laughs) Chicago, Austin, Texas, San Francisco, Seattle, and... Obviously, I forgot to mention around where I live. So D.C. and Baltimore and also Philadelphia are on that list. And then I'm going to do some in the U.K. That's all laid out on jamescomeybooks.com. And the tour schedule and all the information folks might want is at jamescomeybooks.com. That is awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This is such a great entry for you into the fiction world. And I think thriller and mystery writers are going to embrace you as one of their own. It's a great start. Um, I'm lucky to be able to do it. I'm intimidated. I'm a little nervous and I hope it works out. I think it already has. I agree. 
<laughs> and thank you to our listeners. We're so grateful each week that you join us and the appreciated feedback and support you all give us. Be sure to check out our friends in fiction bookshop.org store to purchase a copy of Central Park West again out May 30th at a discount and support our valued indie bookstores. Be sure to tune in next week for another new episode. And remember, please tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.